we're going to kick off a new series today that uh, is going to center around the life of David. It's going to take us through the summer. But as I was thinking about, you know, summer break, summer vacation, my kids uh, all go to public school and are now home. Um, as of last week, they stopped actually doing things at the high school about six, eight weeks ago, I think. I'm not sure exactly how that all works. But um, but anyway, as I was thinking about, uh, somehow things have changed. Because when I was in high school, way back in the old days, um, there was uh, the last three days of school were like the very worst days of school because it was finals, right? And And now I have two high schoolers this year who pretty much opted out of finals, which that wasn't even a thing that anybody had thought of back in the 19... <clears throat> before. And, but, but my hope is that as, as much as things change, and as, as grateful as I am that my kids didn't have to go through that stress of, of finals, um, that, that there are some things that remain constant and remain the same. And, and it may not be at the end of the school year, but I'm hoping that the beginning of the school year still looks the same. Because I have a distinct memory of my very first day of first grade. And walking into the room, and you got your pencil box, and you got those great big fat pencils, right? You with me? And, and um, of course, back in that day, you, you were allowed to carry a cigar box to hold your stuff to school. I think they'd probably throw you in jail for that now. I'm not sure about that. But, um, so you had your cigar box that you had decorated, and you had your big fat pencil, and you had your eight crayons, and you had your little stuff in there, and you get in. And I can remember walking in, the teacher, Mrs. Abernathy, is there, and she says, okay, go and find your name and, and sit at the, da- the table where your name is. And at that point, that's about all you know in first grade is what, how to spell your name, maybe. Um, and so I walk in, and, and there are four desks that are pushed together. So I'm sitting here, and next to me sits Tim, and there's two girls that sit over there, and we're in first grade, so they're girls who are not even concerned about them at this point, um, are talking to them. But you sit at a table, and there's four of you at the table. And school started the same way for every single kid in America at that point in time. The teacher looked up and said, okay, you've all found your places. Put your pencil box underneath your, your desk in the little holder thing that it slid into. And a lot of you are going like this. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Now I want you to introduce yourself to the other kids that are at your table. So I want you to tell them your name and what you did over summer vacation. Sound familiar to anybody? Okay. So that's what it was. It was your name and what you did over summer vacation. Because as a first grader, that was all you had, right? You'd had summer vacation since kindergarten. And so that was a big deal, you know, because you took a break from eating paste or whatever it was at that point. And, and so you got this, and you're going to tell them your name. You're going to tell them what you did over summer vacation. And then as you grow up a little bit, you know, you get into the later grades of school. And then you get to high school. And if you're in- introducing yourself at high school, you say, my name is, you know, so-and-so, and I'm in theater, or I'm in band, or I play football, or I play baseball, or I don't do anything, so I sit at home and play video games, and my parents yell at me, or whatever it is that you do. And, and you, get this, you get this character that's built around you, right? And you get this personality, and you get these characteristics that define you. But it doesn't end at school. 
So then you get out of school and you get grown up and all this stuff and you start going to church and you, you go on the men's retreat or a women's thing or you're involved in a Bible study of some sort. You get in a small group and they all start the same way too, only we don't talk about summer vacation. And we say, so you're in this group of people. If you don't know somebody, let's introduce ourselves so we all get to know each other. And if you're in a group of men, it's always exactly the same thing. Hello, my name is Skeet and I'm a pastor. Hello, my name is so-and-so, and it's my profession, okay? Because guys always talk about their profession. It's what I do. Now you go to the women, and the women get together, and it takes a little longer, but they get together, and, and the women get together, and they say, hello, my name is, and the first thing they say is, I have so many kids, or I've been married so long, or maybe it's a little bit about profession, but it tends to be about family, I tested this all last week on a number of people, too, so I know I'm, I'm right on this. So with the guys, it's always about what I do, and with the women, it's usually about my family. And you know what? That's good. That's natural. It's actually inbred into us, and it's something that God has given us because God has commanded men to be the caretakers over our families and that women are the nurturers of the kids and everything else like that. So it's all natural. That's all good. Okay? So. Then you go home, guys, and you've been at this thing, this retreat, this evening with guys, something, and you walk in the door, and, and if you're kind of new to the church or new to the situation, your wife looks at you and says, so tell me about some of the guys. And you were with eight people. You can remember two of their names. And, and you may remember what they did, but then your tendency is more to go towards description. Well, there's one guy who's really tall, you know, and then there was this guy, Bear. He's one of the pastors of the church, really good-looking guy. Um, whatever it is, it gets to be just physical description. And, you know, that is defining of who we are as well. And all those things are good. All those things are natural. All, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But one of the things that we want to look at this morning as we dive into the life of David is not just the physical descriptions, not just the jobs that David had, not just the characteristics that define him, but also what God looked at and what truly defined David. If I asked you what Bible character appears more in Scripture than any other, hopefully your first answer would be, God, okay, because he's in there kind of all throughout the whole thing. But past that, David is the character that appears more than anybody else in Scripture. There are over 3,000 characters that are defined for us in Scripture, but David is in more passages than anyone else. David's in 66 chapters, and his name is mentioned over 140 times. That's a lot of ink for one guy. Now, some of the people in Scripture are heroes. You know, some of the people in Scripture are villains. Some of the people in Scripture are put there so we can see from their example a good example. Some people are put in Scripture so we can learn from their poor example what not to do. And interestingly enough, David sort of fits into all of those descriptions. As a matter of fact, if David was in your guy's small group or your couple's small group with his wife and, you know, you're talking about who you are, I, my, my mind went to how would David describe himself? What would David say? Because he's got a pretty good list. 
I'm a shepherd. I'm a poet. I'm a king. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a warrior. I'm a harpist. That one doesn't get into many conversations. Neither does this one. I slay, I slew, slayed. I killed a giant once. I'm a murderer. I'm a passionate worshiper of God, even to the point where I've been in trouble with my wife because I do it so enthusiastically. I'm a soldier. I'm a leader. I'm a faithful friend. I am so many things. All those things describe David. But you know what? As you look at that list, some of them are great and positive. From all we know, David was a great shepherd. He protected his father's sheep even when they were attacked by bears and lions and things like that. He was a, a, a good king. He was a great harpist. And how many people can say, I killed a giant? But you know what? David was a crummy dad. David wasn't much of a husband. And you can't be a good murderer no matter how you slice it. So David had all of these different things that made him the person that he was. Beyond that, history tells us some more about David. History tells us that David was one of the most powerful men in the world. Because at the time that David was king of Israel, Israel was one of the dominant forces in, war, in the world at that point in time. And as the king, he be, therefore is one of the most powerful men walking the face of the earth at the time that he was king. David was a man of immense wealth. When it came time at the end of David's life, when they took up an offering to build God's temple, which was David's dream, to build the temple for God, David came forth with his offering first. And he gave over $850 million worth of gold and silver in today's dollars. That's not to mention all the other stuff that he kicked in as well. And even at that, he remained the wealthiest man in the nation of Israel after he had given that. But like I said, David was a failure as a father. And although David's dream was to build the temple of God so the people of God could come and worship God in one place, God spoke to David and said, you are not going to be the one that builds my temple. Because in your life you have shed so much blood, I cannot have you be the one to build my temple. So David instead gave his gifts, and his son Solomon was the one that wound up building the temple. David's an interesting character. And there is tons that we can learn from David. So over the next three months through the summer months, we're going to look at a bunch of different chapters out of the life of David. But as we do, I want to start us off with a, a passage from a man named uh, Alan Redpath, who was a pastor at Moody Church through the 60s and the 70s, and he said this in his book, The Making of a Man of God, the story of David. The Bible never flatters its heroes. It tells us the truth about each one of them in order that we may, against the backdrop of human breakdown and failure, magnify the grace of God and recognize that it is the, the delight of the Spirit of God to work upon the platform of human impossibilities. As we consider the record of Bible characters, we can often find ourselves looking in a mirror. And often we are humiliated by the reminder of how often we have failed. Great has been our stubbornness, if we're honest, but greater still has been God's faithfulness. When God works in the lives of people, he doesn't look for perfect people. That's not his desire. 
Because none of us are. So he would never find that person. But David, with all his successes and failures, turned out to get a title given to no other person in God's word. God says that David is the man after his own heart. And that's a pretty special title, along with king and giant slayer and all those other things. The most important title David is given is a man after his own heart. So as we begin today, I want to open uh, into the book of 1 Samuel. But before we get there, I want to start sort of at the beginning of the story of David. Because in order to, to talk about David as the king of Israel, we need to kind of understand where the whole thing of Israel comes from in the first place. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 12 with me. If you don't have your Bible, there's one uh, at the end of the aisle, or it's gonna, the words are going to be up on the screen behind me. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and I will dishonor those... Uh, dishon- I'm sorry. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I know a lot of you know the story. God looks down at mankind and he chooses out for himself this person of Abram, later to be called Abraham. And he sets Abraham apart. And he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Your people will be my chosen people. And he takes Abraham and he asks him to be different than the rest of the world. He asks him to leave the place where he has grown up. He asks Abraham to, to do these things. And he says, And Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky, the grains of sand on the seashore. And if you know the story, Abraham kind of laughs because he looks down and he says, I'm a really old guy and I got no kids. And then he looks at his wife and he laughs again because she's, you know, looks worse off than he does, apparently. He says, How is this going to happen? But God honors his promise to Abraham. And it's the beginning of of God's chosen people, a people set apart for God's service and God's blessing. He says, I will bless those that bless you, those that dishonor you, I will curse, and you will be a blessing to everyone. I want you to notice something, though. God's emphasis in this passage, he doesn't say, Abraham, I am going to make you great. He doesn't say, Abraham, you will be great. He says, Abraham, I am going to make you into something. So as God looks down at Abraham, he doesn't say, here is this great guy that I'm going to empower. He says, here's this guy, and I'm going to greatly empower him to be this leader of my people. And that's a difference. So, Over the next 900 years or so, from this calling of Abraham, God continues to build into his people. And they go through much. They have all kinds of different leaders. They have deliverers like Joseph and Moses and Joshua. They have people that lead the nation. They have prophets that speak for God and share with the people what God wants them to do and where he wants them to be and and correct them as they go off path. He gives them judges that go through this whole cycle of the people of Israel are obedient and then they start to disobey and God sends a judge and then he they turn back and start obeying again. There's a whole series of judges. 
And the last of the judges that God calls is a man named Samuel. And Samuel is an interesting character because Samuel hands off the people of Israel from judges to a king. And the story is, is interesting how they get to being to having a king over the people of Israel. And it begins in the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. So if you turn there and read with me. When Samuel became old, <clears throat> he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they were judges in uh, Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after gain, and they took bribes to pervert justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. You get this? God has chosen the people of Israel. He has set them apart. He has blessed them for centuries. And the people of Israel say, we are a little bit tired of this, and we want to be like everybody else. This is the first part of a a problem for the people of Israel. When they say, we want to be like everybody else. And, And unfortunately, it's not just a problem for the people of Israel, but a lot of us in our lives are uncomfortable not being like everybody else. Let me go back with you again to the, to the story I started with this morning about sitting at my table in, in first grade, and the kid that was sitting next to me was a kid named Tim. And I found out from Tim on that first day of school that Tim had moved to the neighborhood. He lived three blocks down the street from me, literally down the hill to Tim's house. And Tim had moved from Ohio over the summer. He'd only been in town for a couple weeks before school started. And... Tim was unlike everybody else because the rest of us had kind of grown up together to all of our six years of life. But Tim was different. And in that time, Tim had no greater desire than to be like everybody else. And you know what? For a first grader, that's outstanding. You, you want to fit in. You want to be like other folks. But for a people that are chosen by God to be set apart, to say we want to be like everybody else, is really moving backwards. And that is where the people of Israel find themselves. They say we want to be like everybody else, and it's the beginning of a real problem for them. Look at verse 6. It said, but the uh, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say uh, to you. Um, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me for being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done. For the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing this to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So we get to this point that that God relents and, and he has told his people from the beginning that he wants to be their only king. But they are demanding, they're begging, they're asking for a human king. 
And, and God says, Samuel, you can go to them, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to warn them first before we do this. And I want you to tell them, when you get this human king, here's what's going to happen. He's going to tax you, and he's going to take all your wealth, and he's going to take your land and your animals and your property. He's going to take your sons, and he's going to make them into uh, soldiers to fight for him. He's going to take your daughters, and you turn them into servants. He's going to, to do all those things that I have never asked you to do, but the king will ask you to do that. If you still want a king, tell me. And the people say, yes, in a resounding manner, we still want a king. And so Saul, or so uh, Samuel says, then that's what you shall have. So God gave the people of Israel exactly what they asked for. They were asking for a king so they could be like everybody else, and God gave them a great king from a human perspective. He was, the Bible says that, that Saul, the first king of Israel, was from a great family. His p- parents, his family were an important family. He had wealth. He was handsome. He was a great warrior, and he stood literally head and shoulders above every other man in the nation of Israel. That's what you're looking for in a king, usually, from a human perspective. But unfortunately, the people of Israel, and we so many times, want, to, uh, want what we think is best instead of what God knows is best. And it's one of the first lessons of the story of the kings of Israel. That God's desire was never for them to have a king other than himself. But they chose to go the other direction. And God gave them what they asked for. If you know the story of Saul, he was not a good king. And it wasn't long before Saul was in trouble with the prophet and with God. And God gave Saul very, very specific instructions, and he chose to disobey them. And when Samuel the prophet goes to see Saul and confronts him, Saul lies about what he has been doing. And because of that, the Bible says that God withdrew his anointing from Saul, and he was no longer going to be the king of Israel. We find that we pick up that story in 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning at verse 13, and it says this. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So get this, God gave the people of Israel in Saul what they wanted from a human characteristic point of view. He's tall, he's good looking, he's a great warrior, he's wealthy, he's from a great family. And says, but God wanted a man after his own heart. Because the peace that Saul was missing was a heart for God. And that's where the problem fell. So God tells the prophet Samuel to go to Saul and give him the bad news that he is going to withdraw his anointing from Saul. It says that he would have made Saul's family into the, the ruling family of, of Israel forever, but now that's not going to happen. And he's going to find someone with a heart after his own. So we skip ahead three chapters to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and pick up the story right there of the anointing of the next king of Israel. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning at verse 1, says, And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. 
I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have uh, provided for myself a king among his sons. So now, instead of giving the people what they want, God is going to give him the earthly king that he wants. And he's looking at the heart of this man. Verse 2, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me whom I declare. So Samuel's concerned, because when God has taken the anointing away from Saul, Saul gets to be a little bit upset about this whole thing, and he is turning on all the people around him. And so Samuel is literally fearing for his life when he's going to go and anoint the next king. But God gives him a plan. And it says in verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and saying, Do you come peaceably? The elders of the city are concerned about Saul and his wrath as well. And Samuel said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves and come to me to the sa- come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely this is God's, anoint- God's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse uh, called uh, Abinadab and made him come before Samuel. And he said, uh, has the Lord chosen this one? And Jesse uh, made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So picture yourself, you're here. They've, done, they've gotten this big party together to anoint the next king. And Samuel has told Jesse that out of his household is going to come the next king of Israel. It says, gather your sons together and come. We're going to pray them before God. And God's going to tell me which one to anoint. And this is going to be a great thing. And don't worry about Saul. We've got this plan worked out. Me and God, it's all going to be okay with this heifer and all this other stuff. And, and they come before, and the seven sons parade before Samuel, and God says, I've rejected all of them. Because Samuel, here's the deal. You're looking at the outside, but I'm looking at the heart of these men. Then Samuel said to Jesse, all your, um, Are all your sons here? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping, all, uh, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him. We will not sit down till he comes here. I want you to understand this. When they go, this is not a small thing that they're doing here. This this anointing, this consecration, this party, this gathering. They have consecrated, which is a ceremonial bathing and ceremonial dress, to get together for this ceremony that the prophet of God is going to perform in their midst. And, and Samuel goes to Jesse and says, bring all your sons. And he does, except for the one that's out there with the sheep. See, in Jesse's mind, David's just barely even one of his kids. He's the youngest of eight. And he's out there with the sheep, and, and he's not looked upon in it with any special measure of, of anything in his father's eyes. Surely it can't be him. I got eight sons. I'll give you the best seven. You know, surely he's in there. But that's not 
what happens. And they sent and they brought David in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. You got this? Saul's taller than everybody. Handsome warrior. David's got rosy cheeks and pretty eyes. This is God's choice for king. And then Samuel took the horn. Or uh, The Lord said to Samuel, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went back to Ramah. Now I want you to get something here in this picture too. So David comes in. He's not clean. He stinks of sheep and goats. And he walks into this, the presence of this company of all the elders of the land or the city of, of Bethlehem and all of the family of Jesse that are all cleaned and in their Sunday best and, you know, spiffed up. And into that walks the smelly shepherd kid. And God says, that's my man right there. Out of everybody in town, that's my man. And they anoint him with, with the oil. And it says that the Lord rushed upon David. The reason that the Lord rushed upon David was not because he was the strongest, the fastest, the best at anything, but he had a heart after God's heart. And because of that, God was going to make him the king of his chosen set of heart people. So how does this kind of thing happen? Well, if you, if you skip forward to the book of 2 Chronicles and go to 2 Chronicles chapter 16, there's a great verse that, that describes a lot of this. And it says in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, it says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. See, when God looks down, he's not looking at the physical characteristics of anybody there. He's looking at the hearts of all those men. It says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the entire earth that he can strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And you know what I like about that verse? It says those. It doesn't say David, that one guy. It says those. So what that means to me is there are other people that God is looking for as his eyes travel throughout the world, looking for whom he can strongly support. And the people that he's going to strongly support are those whose heart is truly his, those who have a man after God's own heart, those who are women with a heart after God's own heart. Which takes me to how do you know, how do you get there? The man with a heart after God's own heart, I got a couple things for you. That man, his heart is completely God's. Her heart is completely God's. What does that mean? It means this. When God says do it, you do it. When God says don't do it, you don't do it. You don't make excuses. You don't try and work your way around so that it works better for you. You, God says do it, you do it. God says don't do it, don't do it. Period. The other thing about that is, there is nothing that is hidden in your heart. When God looks at you, there's nothing that, that you haven't communicated with Him. A man after God's own heart has a heart that is completely God's. And when we have that heart, it says that God will strongly support us. 
The second characteristic of someone in David's situation with a heart after God's is that he is humble in heart. One of the great parts of this whole story. So David gets yanked in out of the fields, right, where the sheep are and the goats are that he's been looking after. And the, the prophet of God is there. And everybody knows who Samuel is. You know, he's a, he's a big wig in Israel. He's God's prophet. And, and, and he anoints him with oil, which is a fairly significant thing. He doesn't just, like, walk up and shake his hand. He, he, he pours oil over his head. He anoints him with oil. This is a big deal. This is something significant. And it's something that's, that shows. But the story says that after David is anointed, the next time we see him, guess where he is? He's back with the sheep. He's back out there with the sheep. And that goes against everything that I would do as a person. God anoints me with oil and says, you're going to be the king. I'm not getting near sheep again, except for a good lamb chop. God says you're going to be king. I'm never doing dishes at my house again either, you know. I got seven brothers, and we don't even know about sisters, you know. But one of the things about David is he goes back with the sheep to tend his father's flocks. And we, to the best of our knowledge, he never lords it over his brothers that he is God's anointed. That God passed on seven out of seven and anointed him. David has a humble heart. David has a heart that's willing to do whatever God wants him to do. The other thing I see about David that's significant is this. The heart that David has developed to this point has been developed in solitude. David goes out with the sheep and plays his harp and writes psalms and sings praises to God and tends the sheep and communes with God one-on-one out in the fields. He's not tied up with all the trappings of the world. He doesn't let the things of the world distract him from his relationship with God. David is a man of solitude at this point. A very young man of solitude, but a man of solitude. And as we go through the life of David, one of the things that we're going to see is that when David starts being surrounded by more and more people and more and more advisors and is a little less solitary with God and a little more involved with people, his life does start to fall apart. Some of the worst decisions he makes are when he is with people as opposed to being away from people. So a man after God's own heart is humble, is obedient, and spends time alone with God. Again, the Bible tells us the truth about our heroes. It doesn't sugarcoat things. In order that against the backdrop of human failure, we magnify the grace of God and recognize that it is the delight of the Spirit of God to work on us. Great is our stubbornness, and greater still is God's faithfulness. But please don't forget that the, this, this giant slaying king who dances with abandon before the Lord has another side to him as well. He's adulterous. He's a murderer. He's poor with his children and not a good father. But he still remains a man after God's own heart. How can that be? Because God does not expect us to be perfect. God doesn't choose out only perfect people. God chooses people who are willing 
to follow him in humble obedience. You know, one of the things that I see in people and one of the things I know that Satan does is he likes to point out our, our weaknesses. And, and people are really good at even pointing out their own weaknesses, right? And, and we're really good at saying, you know, well, David is the youngest. You know, maybe I'm the youngest, so I'm not as qualified as others. And, and David smelled like sheep. You know, I'm not sure where you feel you smell like sheep and compared to other people, but I know sometimes we do, right? We feel inadequate. We feel that we don't measure up. You know, even in, in Christian circles, a lot of times we feel like, you know, I'm not as good at the whole Bible trivia thing as some other people. I don't know as much of God's word as some of the people sitting in the service with me. I, I, I don't know exactly what, you know, as much as some of the other people around me. But I will tell you this, if you understand God's saving grace and that he has worked in your life, that's all you need to know to be functional for him. David, after his great sin, says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David was willing to ask forgiveness and to go before God when he messed up. So when I think about all this, I think that that we... You know, we are all made up of our own physical characteristics. We're all made up of our own traits. And, and we all have our own strengths and our own weaknesses. But, but when God looks at us, he doesn't look at those things. As a matter of fact, I, I think if he ever does look at our weaknesses, he looks at them so he can delight in proving us wrong and in proving others wrong. What God is looking for is people who are obedient when he asks us to move and who are humble in our attitudes towards him and towards others. I started out telling you about the kid that sat next to me in first grade. I'm not sure how many of you remember the kid that sat next to you in first grade. I'm probably guessing most of you don't. But Tim made an impression on me because Tim was my neighbor that lived down the street. And we got to be friends, and we stayed friends all through through grade school and through junior high and in high school and freshman year. We started to drift apart a little bit, but we were still friends because we only lived three blocks apart. And I will tell you that the summer after our freshman year in high school, Tim had a serious accident. He was rock climbing and he fell and he sustained significant brain damage from that accident. He was never able to communicate again and he was as far as we could tell, unable to understand what people were saying to him. It's a tragic story, but there's a little bit more to the story that I shared earlier this morning. I want to real quick, as we wrap up, share with you guys too. See, when the summer after our first grade year, Tim and I were riding in the back of my mom's LTD station wagon, blue with fake wood trim on the outside. No seatbelts in those days either, but that's all right. And as we're riding along, I finally worked up the courage to talk to Tim about Jesus. I said, Tim, do you go to church? He says, yeah, as a matter of fact, my dad's a pastor. I didn't know that about Tim. We'd gone through school the whole year, never knew, because you didn't ask about your dad's job. That was their job to talk to each other. Not... I said, oh, so you all know all about Jesus. He said, know about who? I said, your dad's a pastor and you don't know about Jesus. He said, yeah. I said, where's your dad, Pastor? And it's a whole thing. doesn't matter. But here's a kid that was raised, didn't know anything about Jesus. And I thought to myself, in my own first grade, six-year-old inadequacy, 
although I knew about Jesus, I didn't share about Jesus. Because I said, who am I to argue with a pastor's kid about this? And to share with him about Jesus. I remember that because I also remember the day I found out about Tim's accident. And I realized at that point in time, I had opened that conversation and I never finished it. I'd never completed it. I'd never pursued it anymore after that 20 minutes in the back of mom's station wagon. And I share that with you this morning to say it is something that has haunted, is not really the right word, but almost inspired me ever since that I'm going to take opportunity to share Jesus with people. And when I realized that God was calling me that day as a six-year-old to share with Tim, that God can look at me and use me today with all my faults, with all my problems, with all the stuff that is in my life, and he can use everybody out here too. And it doesn't matter about your education, and it doesn't matter about your qualifications. What matters is do you have a heart that's willing to be obedient? Will you humbly share what God has done in your life? And will you have a heart after God's heart for lost people that he brings into your life? I hope so. Because I think that's one of the lessons that God wants us to learn. You are qualified today. You're adequate if you have a heart after God's.